All right, as I mentioned, tonight's teaching is going to come from Exodus chapter 2. We're looking at verses 1 through 14, which picks up where we left off just a second ago. This is the story of the birth of Moses. And here we read, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the run, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you the ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. This is God's word. What you see on the screen there, I'm sure you've seen some depiction of that at some point in time in the past. That is the beautiful and brilliant bifurcation of the human brain. And I'm guessing a lot of you have heard this or known this to some extent. There is a difference between left brain and right brain and how the brain functions. We don't know a lot about the brain, but we do know that this is uh, a real thing. And the left brain seems to function in terms of analysis while the right brain seems to function more in terms of intuition. And so the left brain is logic, the right brain's imagination, the left brain is strategy, the right brain is creativity. And fascinatingly, it even works all the way down the line into things, uh, there's, there's implications for this from a gender standpoint and even um, from a mental health standpoint. It's really fascinating to me that uh, when certain uh, mental illnesses that generally are predominantly male seem to be the left brain behaviors and left brain functions gone awry, while there's also other uh, mental illnesses that women tend to have higher proclivities towards that almost seem to be like the right brain gone awry. And there's all sorts of fascinating extrapolations of this particular principle, the bifurcation of the human brain. I remember being blown away, however, once the first time I learned that the Bible is actually also bifurcated according to something like left brain and right brain analysis. Uh, in other words, the New Testament and the Old Testament, sometimes people sort of falsely suggest that the Old Testament is like predominant, you know, just law and the New Testament is gospel and that's not true. But 
the New Testament does seem to function more like left brain function and the Old Testament like right brain function. And what I mean by that is by and large, the New Testament tells us in systematized detail what the Old Testament shows us in narrative form. You catch that? The New Testament teaches in like doctrinal principles laid out what the Old Testament tells us in very fascinating biographies and stories. And uh, so, for instance, Paul and James and John and Peter and Jesus himself seem to teach us the exact same principles that the lives of the heroes of faith like Abraham and Moses and David show us. That's super interesting. It's also really important for as we enter into our worship series here, which is going to be on the book of Exodus. And we're titling it, subtitling it, The Journey of Every Believer. And what exactly does that mean, uh, the journey of every believer? Well, you know, Exodus, as you study it, it's a real historical account, but it's also recorded in such a way that it very clearly is intended to mirror the spiritual journey of God's people. And what I mean by that is this, the 30,000 foot view of Exodus is that you have God's people who are uh, enslaved in a way that they cannot free themselves of. And God has to send to them a prince deliverer as they're crying out for help. And this deliverer comes and miraculously frees them through the waters of the Red Sea that destroy their enemies, and they're on this journey to eventually get to this glorious promised land, but they're not gonna get there right away. They take this like circuitous, scenic route, and they're gonna be wandering in the wilderness for a long time, for like a lifetime. And what I need you to see throughout the series is like, that's their story, but that, that's also your story. That's their story, but that's your and my spiritual story. And what that means is you and I are born into this world enslaved to sin. We're incapable of our helping ourselves out of it and God has to send to us a, a, a prince, a powerful prince that comes and delivers us. Why? How? By passing us through miraculously the waters of baptism and he's taking us on a journey that ultimately has the goal of getting us to a glorious promised land that we refer to as heaven and guess what? We're not getting there right away. We are taking like this scenic route by which we get discipled in and it is, it's, it's not heaven, it's the wilderness. And what that means is we are miraculously, we're, we're abundantly provided for along the way, but it's not always great and we're struggling with grumbling and we're struggling with idolatry in the process. And so what that means is this journey through life of a believer is one of a combination of both like blessing and disappointment, constantly, daily. See, it totally mirrors what's going on in Exodus. Now, let's get started with uh, the text itself. Um, we read Exodus 1 just a second ago. And Exodus 1 is that bridge chapter that tells us what happened from the end of Genesis to the beginning of the narrative of Exodus. And I've got, I get this question every once in a while. I just got it online uh, a couple weeks ago. But what happened? to God's people after Genesis. They seem to be doing so well. Joseph is second in command in all of Egypt. He has brought his family, his people, the Israelites, into a, a prominent sort of private land called Goshen in Egypt. They're doing great. However, after he dies, eventually a king, a pharaoh, rises to power 
who has no knowledge, no familiarity, and no affinity for Joseph or his people. And instead, he views these Israelites in his land as like foreign invaders who, if they get too numerous, are going to overrun the land. And so he has to subvert them and suppress them in enslavement. So for 400 years, God's people are enslaved. For four centuries, God's people, all they know from birth to death is enslavement that they themselves can't get out of. And yet, God is with them. And he's tending to them and he's blessing them and he's actually blessing them numerically so greatly that eventually, uh, around 1500 BC, the Pharaoh has to issue a decree or decides to issue a decree that the Hebrew midwives have to start killing all the baby boys that are born amongst the Hebrews. The women, no, they're all right. The girls seem to, they seem to be able to assimilate a little bit better into Hebrew culture, but the boys are, for whatever reason, volatile and a threat. And therefore, you have to kill all of them. Now, the Hebrew midwives at the time that are mentioned in Exodus 1 defy, and we're going to come back to that principle of civil disobedience, which is an important lesson for believers to learn along the way. We'll come back to that under the application section. But for right now, in Exodus 1, all you need to understand is that God's people are suffering under a very hostile environment that they're trying to navigate. And that's when in Exodus 2, we meet Moses. Now, he's not named Moses yet. He's a Hebrew boy born to two Hebrew parents, Amram and Jochebed, and they are a godly family that, like the Hebrew midwives, is also defying the wicked decree of the godless Pharaoh. And so they're hiding Moses, and for the first three months, they're capable of doing that because he's small and he's fairly quiet and they can control. The the bigger the kid gets, the more easily exposed and harder to control he is. So by three months, somehow his older brother Aaron, older by three years, has uh, gotten around this decree. And he's apparently missed the deadline in the cutoff point, but Moses is right in the heart of it. And they know if he's discovered, he's going to get killed. And so what the mom, Jochebed, decides to do is she builds this little papyrus uh, boat, you know, a little basket that she covers with tar and makes it buoyant. And she floats it in the reeds of the Nile River on the bank. And she seems to do it strategically at a point and in a place that she knows he's going to be encountered by the princess, the pharaoh, Uh, the daughter of the Pharaoh of Egypt. And she sends Moses' older sister Miriam along with Moses to sort of surveil everything from a distance to keep an eye on him and make sure it turns out okay. And sure enough, the princess comes down and she hears the cries and sees the tears of this abandoned little Hebrew baby boy left for dead and her heart goes out and she falls in love with him and, and she wants him as her own. But, you know, strategically, Miriam sort of steps in at this time. The big sister steps in and says, "Uh, do you need any help with that baby? And she says, yeah, nanny would be great. I'm not equipped. I wasn't planning on raising a baby today. So if you can help care for him, if you can find a Hebrew uh, nanny for him, that would be ideal. So what does Miriam do? She takes Moses and goes and places him in his own biological family. And not only do they get to raise their own child, they get paid by the princess to raise their own child. So this is a huge win in, in just about every respect. 
Most scholars will say that this goes on for at least the weaning process, so at least th maybe three years, but uh, th the way it's recorded, it actually could be more like five to eight, or some commentators will say even up to 12 years. So Moses is raised in his biological home, but he also develops a very strong sense of Hebrew identity and that these are my people. But when he's however old, eight, 12, years old, the princess says, yeah, I'm ready to raise him on my own now. And she brings him into the palace. And it's at that point that he receives the best conceivable education in the world at this time, an Egyptian palace education. Now, the Egyptians, we even know today, were famous for some of their, particularly their, their gifts in the sciences. So engineering and astronomy and mathematics and anatomy. Even today, historians, when they look back at the Egyptians, they uh, look back at them and say, okay, we don't know exactly how they accomplished their remarkable architectural feats. We don't know exactly how they were so accurate in their calendar. We don't know exactly how they were so far ahead of the game in the embalming process of dead bodies. So this is, this is an education for somebody who is earmarked to run the world. It's the top possible education available. And yet, as he grows up, we're told he gets to 40 years old and he can't take something anymore. And what he can't take is that the people that he ethnically identifies with, the Hebrews, are facing the oppression that they are. And he doesn't know to what extent exactly at this point. And so he decides to venture out one day and go into the trenches and to see exactly how bad it is. And it's then that he finds a, an Egyptian taskmaster beating down a Hebrew slave. And Moses I would, I would call it a fit of rage because that's what it is, but it's also calculated. Like he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows it's wrong, which is indicated in the text by the fact that, remember where it says he looks both ways? He knows exactly what he's doing. This isn't just a crime of passion. He looks both ways, he makes sure nobody's watching, and he kills the Egyptian taskmaster, and he hides the body. And this is a culminating point in the first two chapters because we learn a couple quick things about Moses and why he's, not, he's a leader, but he's not ready to lead yet. Why? Number one, he's foolish to think that he can turn over an entire nation's system of oppression by killing off one taskmaster at a time. It's a foolish, short-sighted plan. Number two, he is very prideful to think that he has the right to take another man's life into his own hands, irrespective of the wrong that that guy is doing. And number three, he's very naive to think that once he does so, the Hebrew people are going to embrace him as some sort of hero. He's not one of them, not yet. In fact, he's going to go out the next day. Like, he hasn't been living as a slave the past 40 years. He's been living a luxury, uh, luxurious life in the palace the past 40 years. The next day, he's going to go out and he's going to see two Hebrews fighting and say, brothers, this isn't how you're supposed to treat one another. And they at that point say, who do you think you are? who insert yourself into our lives at this point, and then they add, are you going to kill us the same way you did that Egyptian yesterday? At that point, he realizes this chapter of his life is over. Despite his world-class education, he is still profoundly foolish, immature, and proud. Moses, in some respects, if I was comp comparing him to something, he's sort of like a believer that functions just like the rest of the non-believing world. And a lot of us, like, man, that's relatable in so many ways for a lot of us. Most of us, many of us, who are born and raised in Christian homes can point to a specific spot in our life and say, like, yeah, my, I was a Christian. 
at least I knew the Christian things, but I was functioning with the exact same value system as the world and the exact same behavioral patterns as the world. And that's Moses at this point. And for all of this, the consequences, he's going to have to run to the other side of his known world at the time, the far side of the Sinai Peninsula where he's going to become a shepherd amongst the Midianite people. And we'll pick that up when we get to uh, everything next week. But for now, what I want to do... Oh, did our screen go out? There we go. For now, what I want to do is I want to jump in because we have three big application points that are, are lengthy enough and big enough that I want to spend enough time on them. And the first one is this. Godly civil disobedience. This section of the Bible teaches it about as well as any other, even though the entire Bible teaches it, but especially, maybe all three points that I have for you today, but especially this first one during election season is like, this is the natural time to start talking about some of this stuff. Um, what does that mean? God, the Bible's take on godly civil disobedience is this. God has created his people to be members of what Luther famously referred to as two kingdoms, church and state. Both are institutions established by God for the benefit of mankind. Members of both church and state, right? Uh, which that means that including your governing authorities, you are supposed to pray for them and support them and honor them and obey them. And that's why Jesus says in Luke 20 that you give to Caesar what is Caesar's. I don't know how you can interpret that as anything but be supportive of your governing authorities. And that's why the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 very clearly lays out this idea that all authorities that exist on earth have been established by God and are for your benefit. Even bad government is generally better than no government and therefore you deserve some amount of loyalty, they deserve some amount of loyalty, respect, and support from you. Um, by the way, Jesus is saying that and teaching that and Paul is saying that and teaching that in first century Rome under an establishment that is significantly harsher towards God's people than anything you or I have ever seen. And what Paul and what Jesus say is, it doesn't matter how stupid you think what they're doing is, you submit to them and you honor them and you obey them if they're your governing authorities. With one exception. The one exception, the one time where you must defy is, uh, for example, Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 5. They are told by their local governors that they are not allowed to continue to proclaim the gospel in that region, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they at that point famously say, no, we must obey God rather than man. That's the principle. Um, we see that exact same principle at play in Daniel chapter 3, when the three men who are to go in the fiery furnace, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, receive this decree from King Nebuchadnezzar to bow down to this idol of Babylon, and they say, no, if you've got to kill us, kill us, but we're not doing it. We see the exact same principle at play with Daniel in Daniel chapter 6, under King Darius at the time, who was commanded, you don't pray to anybody uh, except me. You're not allowed to pray to the Lord God of Israel, and Daniel says, I don't care, I'm praying to the Lord God of Israel. If you've got to kill me, kill me. They throw him into the lion's den. With the exact same principle at work in Exodus chapter 1 with the Hebrew midwives who got the decree from Pharaoh to kill the babies and they said, we're not doing it. We'll lie about it. We're not doing it. I don't care if you kill us. We see the same principle at play in Exodus chapter 2 with Moses' parents. What is the principle? We must obey God rather than men. And we understand there's probably going to be a cost attached to that. The summary is whenever the government commands something that uh, God forbids, or the government forbids something that God commands, you must disobey. We don't have options as believers. 
the government commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, we must disobey. Understanding there's a cost attached to discipleship and it might, af- might actually be your life. I remember how horrified I was the first time I ever read, I've read a couple of them, the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran pastor in the mid-20th century who on April 8th, 1945, without a fair trial, without any kind of confession, without any legitimate accusatory witnesses, was stripped naked and taken outside into the execution courtyard and hung. Why? Because he would not stop speaking out against the Nazi regime and Hitler's genocidal actions towards the Jews because he had such a strong conviction, I must obey God rather than man. And I don't, he's, he's the guy who actually wrote the book, The Cost of Discipleship, literally. Really good book. Um, interestingly, God's people, no matter where you plunk them down in time and space and history, God's people who are actually living as God's people always look a little bit radical to whatever the culture is. And what's interesting is how different they look from culture to culture. So, for instance, in Eastern societies that have, in the past hundred years, communist regime, God's people have always looked liberal, really liberal. Why? Because they won't submit to the totalitarian regime of the state. That makes them liberals. But in Western democracies, God's people have historically always looked traditional and conservative. Why? Because they won't submit to their romanticized hearts and their enlightened minds. They won't submit just to their feelings and their thoughts, like the secular world is inclined to do. You see, in other words, in the East, God's people will never say the state is God. And in the West, God's radical people will never say the human heart and the human mind is God. Doesn't matter what culture you find yourself in, we must obey God rather than men. And that's always going to look a little culturally radical. Okay? Application number two God's sovereignty. This is gonna, we could probably make this an application point for every narrative we look at through the rest of Exodus and, and really every narrative in the Bible. But look at Moses' upbringing. Do you see how interesting this is? Okay, so he, he shouldn't have, by all intents and purposes, he should have been dead. Like, he shouldn't have survived anyways. But he survives, and he's found by and discovered by the princess of Egypt. And at that, he's also allowed to be nannied by his own biological family, his own mother. So he spends, again, what scholars have said is maybe five or eight years in his biological home, long enough to very clearly establish an ethnic identity, a strong sense of ethnic self. And it's at that point when he's 8 or 10 or 12 years old, however, that the princess takes him into the palace. And it's there in the palace that he gets his world-class education where he studies strategy and advanced mathematics and astronomical navigation. Remember, this is going to be a guy who leads a nation of several million people through the wilderness. Do you think that education was handy in any way, shape, or form? In other words, somebody, somebody might argue, well, God was directing them the entire time. Yes, he was, but God also works through the gifts that he develops inside of us, the aptitudes. In other words, if Moses had only been born and raised in his biological Hebrew family, he never would have developed the leadership competence to lead a nation of multiple million people out of slavery. On the other hand, if Moses was only raised in the palace, he never would have developed a strong sense of ethnic identity where he was sympathetic towards his Jewish people. 
Do you think it's an accident that God has him put a foot in both worlds for as long as he did? And I'll tell you what, it doesn't even stop there. It's, so Moses is 40 years old when the last event in our narrative uh, ends. If the exodus happens when Moses is 40 years old, it's an absolute disaster. Why? Because Moses is kind of a proud, arrogant jerk. He, he feels entitled to take a man's life into his own hands. He's a little bit of a hothead. Now, later on in, in the book of Numbers, chapter 12, we actually read this section, very interesting, that says, now Moses was the most humble man on the planet. Which, when you realize that that statement was actually written by Moses, it's increasingly interesting to state, yes, that guy is as humble as it gets, right there. But it was true. Now, how did it get true? How does he go from a guy who feels so proud that he can take another man's life without thinking too much about it to, well, so after 40 years, what does Moses do? He flees to become a Midianite farmer, uh, shepherd. He had gone from being groomed to rule the world to not being fit to manage a single human being, so he just has to manage a bunch of sheep for the next 40 years. So he falls pretty hard. And after 40 more years, when he's 80 years old and in the world's mind, he is completely washed up. It's at that moment that God says, all right, now I can use you. Now that you've been totally eviscerated of all of your pride, now I can use you to lead my people. Now notice this. By the steps of his life and despite all of his free choices along the way, God sovereignly gives him a strong sense of ethnic identity with the Jews, a world-class education, and a deep sense of humility by which he realizes, I can do none of this on my own. Now, do you think that's a coincidence? Now, furthermore, if you're applying this to your own life, which I'm asking you clearly to do at this point, if, if, you've been, if you're listening this long into this sermon and are still hearing my voice, do you honestly think anything in your life is actually random anymore? God could have intervened at every step of the way, even on the mistakes Moses killed a guy. That's not on God, that's on Moses. But God could have prevented it. He could have made Moses feel sick that day or, you know, prevented it somehow. Pharaoh issued a decree to kill the, the, the baby boy, uh, boys of the Hebrews. That's on Pharaoh, that's not on God. But God could have prevented it. He allows it to take place. And what that has to mean, if he could have prevented it at all, is he must be intending greater good greater deliverance, greater like an exodus to come out of this. Something that was so great by his design and by his plan that it's bigger than any pain that is caused actually by the incident. Do you believe in that kind of sovereign power that God has even over the mistakes and the failures and the problems of life? Do you believe it? Not just in general, do you believe he's doing that in your life right now too? Final application point. At the end of our text, it looks like Moses has royally messed up his own life. He kills a guy, he's on the run. One of the recurring themes, which I'm not gonna get into this week, but we will in subsequent weeks, is the the idea of homelessness. Where does Moses belong in life? He leads people and he's very prominent and very talented. Where Where is he ever home? He's not safe in his biological home. He's not safe in the palace home. He's not safe with the Jews. He's not safe with the Egyptians. He wanders through the wilderness. He's not safe with the Midianites. He never actually enters the promised land. He's constantly on an exile through this entire life. And so are you and me. We're not actually ever home here. 
never be home here. But in that mistake and in that weakness and in that failure and in that homelessness, he doesn't forfeit everything. God takes all his mistakes and works them out for good. And, and look at it like this. God's sovereign working through weakness is like the, the exodus got launched because a little baby had tears and cries that were heard by a powerful princess and her heart melted and that changed the world. God works through things like the cries of babies. God, generally speaking, works more often through whispers than thunderstorms. It's, if you, have you ever noticed how many babies God sends in the Bible to change the world? Babies. God sends uh, a little baby Isaac to fulfill the promise made to Abraham that he's going to turn into a great nation. God sends um, uh, another baby, not a baby, but a, a young Joseph who into slavery because he's going to save a starving world. He sends a boy, Samuel, to get the nation of Israel back on track. Uh, he sends a boy, shepherd, and David to slay the giant enemies of Israel. He sends a miracle baby boy in John the Baptist to call a religiously wayward nation of the Jews to repentance. And then he sends another baby boy in Jesus to come and save the world. Like you have to see that that's the basic way God operates. That's not the exception, that's the rule. He uses the weak to shame the strong. He sends babies to take down earthly kingdoms. And the greatest demonstration of this, of, of grace and ironic power, is that he uses the death of not just a son and not just a baby, but his own son on a cross, an innocent boy suffering naked like a criminal, and that's what he chooses to use to crush the serpent's head. That's what he uses to pay our debt. That's what he uses to cleanse us of all of our sins. His own death brings us life. It's an amazing but undeniable pattern that God's people have to see taking place in Scripture. And what it also means then for your life is that if God is going to work through you to build his kingdom, and he wants to, man, you can probably bet on that not coming through all of your great successes and all your strengths, but your failures, your mistakes, and your weaknesses. In fact, that's how you get famous in the kingdom of God. Did you ever notice, this is, a lot of commentators have pointed this out before, you know how many commentators, really bright individuals have spent insane amounts of ink trying to determine who the pharaohs of the Exodus were? Like from, from Moses' birth to the, the, you know, the decree to the actual Exodus, who exactly were these guys? Well, there's this theory and there's this theory and trust me, I nerd out and love all that stuff too, but... What's really, really interesting is Moses never actually records their names. Do you think Moses knows the names of the pharaohs at the time? Yeah, he knows their names. Why doesn't he record their names? And why does he go out of his way to record the names of Hebrew midwives like Shifra and Pua, who defied Pharaoh and his decree and saved those baby boys? And we're saying, we don't know the names of those pharaohs, but we're saying the names of those Hebrew midwives 3,500 years later. You got to understand that in God's kingdom, he works through weakness, meekness, lowliness, and humility. He saved us through the foolishness and the weakness of a cross. Praise God. And he's going to work in your life to advance his kingdom through your weaknesses as well. Praise him for that too. Let's close with a prayer.
Lord Jesus, the story of Exodus is our own. We are wandering through life and uh, man, you have so graciously provided for us in the wilderness and yet it's still the wilderness. This is not what we want. From a health standpoint, from a relational standpoint, from a, from a sin standpoint, this world is so fallen and we feel so vulnerable. We're gonna study in the upcoming weeks that you redeemed the Israelites for the purpose that they might go out into the world, into the wilderness and worship you. Help us to do the same and we know why we can because Jesus, you are a greater deliverer than even Moses because Moses risked his life to save his people, but you freely gave your life to save your people. And therefore, we will worship you every day spent in the wilderness till you call us home. In your name we pray, amen. Lord bless you. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.